Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. So we're in this series in the book of Revelation, and uh, we're covering basically a chapter a week, except for today we're going to do two chapters in one message, all right? So I'm going to accomplish the unthinkable for me. But anyway, we're going to look at both chapters 10 and 11 in one message. And uh, the reason I want to do both of them is in these two chapters, I think the most important thing is to get the broad view and to get the overarching picture of what is happening in these chapters. And it's very easy for people to get confused and to lose track of what's happening. You lose the forest for the trees if you get lost in the details. Uh, Ultimately, uh, I know many chapters in Revelation, and I had it expressed to me again this morning. Uh, People read these chapters as well, chapters 10 and 11, and they go, what on earth is going on in these chapters? But when you actually put these chapters in the context of what's happening in Revelation, it actually makes a ton of sense. And it's actually, I believe, simple, as I hope to show you now in this service and at the end, very practical as well for our lives and the calling that's on our church. Okay, But in order to set up chapters 10 and 11, we have to remember again what happened in chapters 8 and 9, because again, in the original, there was no chapter breaks. And part of the reason we have trouble understanding many of the chapters in Revelation is because we read them as islands. We finish chapters 8 and 9, and then we read chapter 10 as this island all on its own as this separate thing, and we wonder, what does that have to do with anything? And then we read chapter 11 as an island by itself, and we wonder, what on earth does this have to do with anything? And so on and so forth, when you have to realize that chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 are all one thing. Okay, chapters 8, 9, and 11 are all one thing. So I got to do a little bit of teaching here at the beginning, and uh, just to set this thing up, and then you're going to see Uh, John's point. And once you see his point, it's a powerful point for our lives and for our church. All right. But to start, let's just again review the last couple of messages. We've talked about chapter eight and chapter nine. Chapters eight and nine are the description of these six, the first six trumpet judgments. And again, the book of Revelation is built on this backbone, this three series of judgments, these seven Uh, seal judgments, and then seven trumpet judgments, and then seven bowl judgments, okay? So chapters eight and nine tell us the first six out of the seven trumpet judgments, and they're awful judgments as we've seen the last couple of weeks, okay? But the interesting thing is then, then you have this interlude between trumpet six and trumpet seven, there's this pause, which covers basically two chapters, Chapters 10 and 11 are this pause. So you get the first six trumpet judgments. Then you have this pause, and this is where Christians get confused because they read these chapters separately and they wonder what's going on here. But everything that's going on in this pause has to do with the trumpets. And then at the end of chapter 11, we get, cha- we get trumpet number seven. But everything in between trumpets six and seven is still part of the same thing. And if you don't realize that, you're going to get lost as to what's happening. Okay. And the most important passage in all four chapters that tells us what the point of the trumpets are and what the points are of our chapters 10 and 11, which have to do with the trumpets, comes at the end of chapter 9, where we read this, okay? And this is the the big hinge passage that explains what's going on in these four chapters. And it says at the end of chapter 9, okay, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, the first six trumpet judgments that have just been described, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, 
nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, this is such a huge passage. First of all, you know, a lot of Christians just read the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments and the, and the, and, and the seal judgments, and they just read them for fascinating stuff. Oh, this is fascinating. These terrible things are going to happen on the world. Now, realize that the purpose of these judgments is not to be fascinating. The purpose of these judgments is supposed to bring the nations to repentance. That's the whole point. If God just wanted to judge the earth, he could just smash it with one judgment. He could just, he could just smash the nations to smithereens in one judgment and be done with it. So why the series of judgments? Why the seals? And then the trumpets are more severe. And then the bowls are the most severe, as we're going to see, of all of them. Why the series of judgments? And we see it here in this passage. The whole point is God is giving the nations time to repent. And at the end of chapter 9, though, what we see is they've already gone through the seals. Now they've gone through the first six trumpet judgments, which are really awful. And we see that even in, in spite of these terrible judgments, the nations are still hard. No matter what God does, they still refuse to repent. Okay? Now that's the important passage. That's explaining what's going on. Now the next two chapters, 10 and 11, which are in between trumpet 6 and trumpet 7, are now going to explain to us what God is doing about this not repenting thing. See, the problem is that just sending judgments on the earth isn't enough. There actually needs to be something that comes along the judgments in order to give people an opportunity to repent. So the judgments shake the nations. The judgments cause the nations to, to be afraid and to think, what is, we're in trouble, we need help. But unless someone comes along and tells them what the solution is, the judgments alone won't bring people to repentance. Isn't that true? And so what you're going to see, I'm just going to sum up all of chapters 10 and 11 right now, and then we'll just work our way through it. But all of chapters 10 and 11 are about one thing, okay? It is about prophecy and witness. That God must send servants, and that includes us, that he must send servants to bear witness to the world as to what the solution is and to tell them to repent. That is, that is chapter 10 and 11 right there in one, in one sentence. Chapters 8 and 9, terrible judgments come, but they did not repent. So God says, it's not enough just that they get the judgment. They also have to be told to repent. So let's see this, okay? All of chapter 10 is simply one thing. And I know there's a few other details in there, but I don't want to lose the forest for the trees. All of chapter 10 is basically but one thing. It's a commission to John to prophesy to the nations. So let's just look at this, okay? So chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And right away here, lots of people are getting lost in the details. Why are we talking about a massive angel? Why are his legs like this and that? Once you know the point, then you can go back in and meditate on the details. But don't get lost on the angel. He's holding a little scroll. Why is he holding a little scroll? Well, we skip, skip ahead a few verses, and then it says this. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Now, 
I, I wish we had time today and we would go back in the Old Testament. This is, this is steeped in Old Testament imagery. It is taken from Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3, but also many other passages. But there's this imagery in the Old Testament that the prophets, God would give them a word, and, and, and in the vision, they would get a scroll with God's words on it, and then they would eat the scroll to get God's words inside of them. By the way, isn't that just a beautiful picture of getting God's word inside of us? So here's the scroll, and, and, and in Ezekiel, he gives Ezekiel, and in Revelation, it's to John, here's God's words, God's words of prophecy that he's giving. Now get it inside of you. Eat it. Don't just read it. Get the word inside of you so that everything then comes out. Now you're prophesying to the nations out of the word of God that's inside of you, okay? And of course, there's many, many metaphors as well in the Old Testament. We can look in the Psalms. We can look in Jeremiah. We can look in, in many of the prophets. And we can see this, this, uh, this analogy of the word of God being sweet like honey. So in this case, the angel. So again, chapters 8 and 9, we have these terrible, terrible judgments, but the people do not repent. And God says someone has to tell them to repent. Witness and prophecy must be married to judgment in order to give the nations opportunity to repent. So now he gives them this scroll, and he says, I want you to eat it. And now he gives them the commission. Here it is. Next verse, verse 10. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was as sweet as honey to my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. So again, the word of God is sweet. But the things that are in this prophecy are prophesying more judgment. So there's a bitterness to this as well. There's a, there's, there's a, a, a painful aspect of this. And then now look, here's the commission. And this, this verse here, the last verse in chapter 10, sums up what chapter 10 is all about. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. That's the point. Okay? So chapters 8 and 9, terrible judgments. The first six trumpets are on the earth. But the people are hard of heart and they still do not repent. And now God says, but they must have a witness. And he, and he commands John, he says, now go tell them to, to repent. Tell them to do it. It's the telling and the judgment together that gives the nations time to repent. All right? Judgment and witness together. All right? Now we keep going. Remember, there's no chapter break in the original. This is all part of the same. Okay, but chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given. Now he's going to move on, and he's going to actually begin to prophesy to the nations. Okay? Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, Clearly here, he's talking about the temple. He's talking about the holy city. This is, this is uh, John, a Jew, one of the apostles. I mean, he's talking about Jerusalem here, okay? And so the first bit of his prophecy now to the nations has to do with Jerusalem, has to do with Israel. And then after this, it's going to move on to the rest of the nations. But this is all part of chapters 8 and 9, judgment. They don't repent. Chapter 10, John, you need to tell them to repent. And now we have further Prophecy to the nations, telling them to repent, okay? And we're going to see that especially with the two witnesses. But first we start with the nation of Israel and Jerusalem. It's going to be trampled by the Gentiles 42 months, okay? Now it's important, as much as possible when we're reading these things, we want to always put ourselves back in the original context. How would the original hearers and readers of these words have heard these words? How would they have understood them, okay? 
Now, there's something really fascinating when we, when we read this, okay? Because when we read this passage, we read it as something in the future. And actually, I believe it is, the final fulfillment is in the future, and I'll show you that in just a few minutes. But we read this as being in the future, and it is, but there's something you need to see here. We read it in the, as in the future because the Gentiles aren't trampling on Jerusalem right now. We live in a time, amazing time, when you think of it in history, when Israel is in the land of Israel, okay, and in the city of Jerusalem, okay, but here's what you have to realize. When John writes the book of Revelation, things were very different than they are now. He's writing the book of Revelation somewhere around 96 AD, okay, and we can be quite confident of that dating. Somewhere in that area, uh, it is pretty unanimous in most of scholarship and has been for centuries and centuries, the early church fathers, right on to now. He's writing this book somewhere around the mid-90s AD, okay? Now, the thing about the mid-90s AD is 20-some years before that, the Romans had already smashed the temple. When John is writing Revelation, his first readers and hearers, when John talks about the temple of God, the temple of God is gone when they're reading this. And the Romans are already trampling on Jerusalem, okay? In fact, and this is where we're going to do a little rabbit trail. I've got to take a few minutes, and we just have to talk a little bit about Israel so you get some important backdrop to some of these prophecies about the nations, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to, we're going to look at the rest of chapter 11, okay? But you have to understand that the, the tearing down of the temple was a major event, okay? In 96 AD, it's already finished, you know, so 20-some years before that, 70 AD, depending on which exact year it happened, but, you know, 25 years or so before that, 70 AD, the Romans tore down the temple and trampled on Jerusalem. That's already happened when John is writing Revelation. His first hearers are, are hearing and reading it. Um, but this was such a big deal in 70 AD. Almost 40 years before that, Jesus was already prophesying the destruction of the temple. I want to show you a couple of prophecies that all feed in kind of to our background understanding of what's happening in in Revelation, okay? If we go to Matthew 24, verses 1 to 2, this is right before Jesus preaches his long sermon on the end times, okay? In Matthew 24, 1 to 2, it starts with this. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now, I can totally relate with these guys on a lot of stuff, can't you? And I don't know if women are the same as guys in this, but anywhere, you know, where LaDon and I have ever gone, if, we, if we've traveled somewhere, I always love to see, when we go to a city, a new city that I've never been before, I want to see all the biggest buildings. I don't know, maybe that's just a guy thing. It's weird, okay? But I want to see all the tallest, biggest buildings, uh, and my boys have kind of gotten some of that obsession with me as well. We love to see tall buildings, okay? And these disciples are, the, the disciples are really no different. They come out of the temple, and you have to realize, in, in Jesus' day, the temple was, it was one of the wonders of the world, Okay, Solomon had built the original temple, but this wasn't the original temple anymore. In fact, this was far bigger than the one Solomon had built. Solomon had built the original temple centuries before, but remember the Babylonians had destroyed that temple. Then Nehemiah had rebuilt the temple, but it was never anywhere close to Solomon's. But now Herod comes along. Herod is a wicked, evil man, but he loves to build. And, uh, and he actually enslaves the people, overtaxes them. There's all kinds of suffering, but he pours tons of the resources of that entire area into building what literally was one of the wonders of the world. The temple, Herod's temple, was, it was magnificent. And it was also a point of pride for the Jewish people because it was this, you know, one of the most incredible uh, buildings and works of engineering in the entire world at that time. And so the disciples come into the temple and they're, they point it out to Jesus and it's like, 
wow, like look at the size of it, the beauty, the engineering, the height, and all of this stuff. Look at it. And of course, Jesus completely unimpressed, right? And of course, part of the problem is he's God. So how do you impress God, right? But anyway, um, he's like, I could do that in my sleep, and he could. But anyway, verse 2, but he answered them, and so they're looking at this temple. Look how amazing this temple is. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He says, this thing is going to get thrown down so badly, there's not even going to be left one stone on another. It's going to be completely flattened. Okay, he said that somewhere in the early 30s AD, just before he died, and in 70 AD, it exactly came true. Okay, and Jesus actually talks about this several times in the Gospels. I want to show you one other one, Luke 21, because this is where we're going to see an interesting phrase that's going to tie us back to some other places in the New Testament and ultimately Revelation 11. In Luke 21, uh, it's, Jesus says this, verse 20. So remember, he's speaking somewhere in the early 30s AD. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea, now this is going to happen again in the end. This is one of those prophecies that has a near and a far. But everything that happens in this passage has directly happened in history in exactly the right order, right around 70 AD, this, these first few verses. Um, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the city, inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for those are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written in it. And interestingly enough, in 66 AD, the Romans came up and surrounded uh, Jerusalem. All the Christians, because they had memorized these words, they were already passing down these words of Jesus, this prophecy of Jesus. They're like, we got to get out. Unfortunately, they were already surrounded. But then an interesting coincidence happened. And again, I don't believe in coincidences. I use that in quotations a little bit sarcastically. But the Roman army got called away. There was another, there was a rebellion uprising. And they actually left Jerusalem. And all the Christians in 66 AD already, they fled. And there's a number of early church reports about this. They actually, there was lots of Christians. Remember the book of Acts? There was tons of Christians in Jerusalem. They all fled Jerusalem. And just a few years later, uh, uh, Titus and Vespasian came back. And that was in 70 AD. And that time they broke through the walls and destroyed the temple. Okay? But all this happened. And then Jesus says this. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. By the way, and did this not happen? I mean, after, uh, I'll show you a timeline in just a second here. Um, but the Jews literally were sent out into all the world, all over uh, Europe and South America and Africa and the Middle East. They were all over the world and they still are to this day. Okay? They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. There's that phrase again. Now notice, until, it's not going to be permanent, the times, and now there's this interesting phrase, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It's very interesting. Jesus is predicting the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem, but he's got this word until. It's not permanent destruction. They'll never rise again. Because promises have been made to them in the Old Testament that they're going to be rescued, but until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, I want to show you a quick timeline, and then we're going to look up this times of the Gentiles thing, okay? Quick timeline of history. For those of you who are history buffs, the rest of you, you can forget this immediately. But Jesus makes this prophecy somewhere in the 30s AD. 70 AD, Romans destroy the temple. 62 years later, the Romans, there's another Jewish uprising. They just did not want to be slaves to the Romans. 
And the Romans massacred the Jews, and at that point, they actually kicked them out of Jerusalem and said, it is illegal for any Jew to be in Jerusalem because the tie of the Jewish people to Jerusalem was so strong, they said, we can't handle these people. As long as they're, as they're in Jerusalem, they don't want us to be in charge of them. And by the way, a little piece of historical information, uh, if any of you has ever wondered, how did the nation of Israel come to have the name Palestine? Like, why is it, I mean, we call Israel Israel, but most of the world, when you look at a map or when you look historically, they always talk about Israel as Palestine. How did Israel came, come to be called Palestine? And I'll tell you how. It was right there in 132 AD. The emperor at that time, as an insult to the Jews, he said, we're going to change the name of this land. We're kicking the Jews out of Jerusalem permanently, which, by the way, he's never able to accomplish. And they came back very quickly and have been, had a presence there the entire time throughout, even when they weren't in control of it. But anyway... Um, the emperor said, we're going to rename the land uh, as an insult to them according to their arch enemies in the Old Testament, the Philistines. Now, there are, the Philistines are long off the map. There were no Philistines living in that time. They're already gone. But Philistine in the Latin language is Palestine. Okay? So they renamed it, literally Philistine, as an insult to the Israelites. They said, we're going to call this the name of your arch enemy in the Old Testament came to be known as Philistine or Palestine in Latin, and that's how it got the name Palestine, okay? So uh, now again, there's no, I mean, a Palestinian there by, the word literally comes from Philistine, but the modern day Palestinians, by the way, are no relation to the, to the Philistines in the Old Testament. That's just some interesting historical stuff. Anyway, for 1800 years, Jerusalem is trampled by the Gentiles and the Jews are out in the nations, okay? Then of course, there's this you know, massive historical miracle, 1948, right after World War II, the state of Israel is reborn. In 1967, the Jews recapture Jerusalem, okay? So that's why we now look at this passage and we see it differently. These people who are first getting revelation, they're, they're seeing this as happening right now. Right now, this is happening. Jerusalem is being trampled right now. And we can see now, however, that the Jews had to come back to Jerusalem Jerusalem. They're going to be attacked again. And I wish we could go into the Old Testament, Zechariah 14, Ezekiel 37 to 39, Jeremiah. We could go all over the place that when Jesus returns to earth, he's coming back to defend Jerusalem. Okay. There is no battle of Armageddon. We'll get to Revelation 16, where the only place in the Bible where this place Armageddon is, is named. There is never going to be a battle of Armageddon. There is going to be a battle of Jerusalem. Okay. That's the final place where Jesus comes back to rescue everyone. And you can read about that again in some of those Old Testament passages I just mentioned. My point, however, is, okay, what is this until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled? Jesus said Jerusalem's going to be trampled until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, okay? Well, if we go to uh, Romans chapter 11, we're going to see something very fascinating there. Romans chapter 11, verse, starting in verse 25. And Paul is speaking here to Gentile Christians, Okay, that's us, people who are believers in Jesus, but not Jewish. And in Paul's day, they were getting proud, as many Christians in church history have become. I wish more Christians had paid attention to this passage. He's talking to Gentile Christians and who had become proud. They were looking at the Jews and basically were saying, hey, you Jews uh, rejected Jesus, so we're the promised ones now. And Jesus says, lest you be wise in your own sight, lest you Gentile Christians be wise and start to look down on Israel... And he's going to talk about something very interesting now. He says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Okay? Now, Paul, several times in his epistles, talks about a mystery, different mysteries. This is, and they're not all the same mystery, but this is, this is the mystery of the relationship between 
Israel and the nations. Okay? And here is what the mystery is. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. So this whole thing, you know, not every Jew rejected Jesus. I mean, the disciples were all Jews. And the thousands of people that got saved in the book of Acts are mostly Jewish. So lots of Jews accepted him. But as a whole, God's nation, in the Old Testament, they were his nation, but as a whole, the nation rejected him. So the Gentiles, Christians are looking down at them. You rejected him. It's done with you. Now it's, now it's our turn. Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a mystery here. There was a partial hardening of Israel, that's really important here, has come upon, has come upon Israel until, and here we see this phrase again, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Israel has has been partially hardened, but only temporarily until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now, what is he talking here about the fullness of the Gentiles? I'll tell you what it is. That's the Great Commission. The fullness of the Gentiles is Jesus said in Matthew 28 that he wants believers from every ethnic group, tribe, language, and nation on earth. And when the fullness of, of the Gentiles has come in is that moment when the Great Commission is completed and we have believers in every tribe and language and ethnic group on earth. And we're getting closer and closer to that. But I think there's still around 1,500 or so left, unreached, totally unreached people groups. Okay? But when, you, when the Great Commission is completed, that is the fullness of the Gentiles. Now, Paul says there's a mystery here. Now, we go on here. Okay? And he says, next uh, statement, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So, there's this thing, and here's what the mystery is. And you say, how do you explain this mystery? Well, in the end, it's a mystery. But in God's sovereign plan, and in his sovereign understanding, Israel, for some reason, had to reject him in order for us Gentiles to receive the gospel the way we have. You say, how does that make sense? It's a mystery, and it's part of God's sovereign plan. That's what Paul calls it, a mystery. So the mystery is, so don't look down on Israel for rejecting Jesus. He says, don't look down on them. Be grateful. God had to partially harden them because that hardening is what is allowing the Great Commission to happen. But now there's a second half to this, to this mystery, which is first, they had to be hardened in order for us to be saved. But the second thing is when the Great Commission is completed and there's people saved from every nation, tribe, and language, and tongue, when that happens, the second part of the mystery is at that point, all of Israel will be saved. They have to be hardened in order for us to be saved. When we are saved, they will all be saved. That's the mystery that Paul's talking about here, okay? So they will all be saved. In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. It's for your sake. So us as Gentiles, don't look down on the Jewish people. Rather be grateful. Somehow in God's sovereign plan, they had to reject Jesus in order for us to receive the gospel. And when we, when we complete the Great Commission, they're all going to be saved. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable means all the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament, he has to keep them. By the way, aren't you glad he's going to keep all his promises to the Jewish people? Because if he can break his promises to the Jews, what confidence can we have that he's going to keep his promises to us? And Paul is drawing on all kinds of Old Testament prophecies uh, here in Revelation, or Romans chapter 11, where he's showing where that prophesy again and again in Ezekiel 39, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, that there will come a day 
when every Jew who is left on earth will accept Jesus as their Savior. Now, it's right here where many people have questions for me and they get confused. They say, are you saying that every Jew is saved just by being a Jew? No. Nobody is saved by their ethnicity, and that includes Jewish people. Everyone is saved the same way by putting their faith in Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike. The mystery that Paul's talking about in Romans 11 is when the Great Commission is completed and all the Gentile nations have received the gospel and people have been saved in every nation, at that point, God will have sovereignly brought things together in his plan that all the Jewish people who are living on earth will at that time accept Jesus willingly and he will return to rescue them in Jerusalem. Okay, that's the mystery of Jewish and Gentile, all right? So anyway, back to Revelation, all of this stuff, we are getting closer to this time. As when the Great Commission is fulfilled, then the Jewish people as a nation are going to actually receive. They're at that point, for the first time in history, they're going to say, Jesus is our Messiah, and they're all going to be saved en masse. And at that time, Jesus is going to come back and rescue them in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem will be trampled again yet one more time for 42 months. Okay? So then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So this will happen again in the future. All right? And now we get into this whole thing about the two witnesses, and I'm just going to read you the, a big chunk, the whole chunk about the two witnesses, and I'm going to explain it. And again, it all flows with 8, 9, 10, and 11, prophecy and judgment coming together. Okay? So let's just read it. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Okay? By the way, 1,260 days, uh, if you know, the Jewish people operated off of a lunar calendar, that means it's based on the moon, not on the sun. Uh, and we could go into a whole discussion about that. Some of you would be fascinated and most of you would fall asleep, but it is interesting stuff. But anyway, if you're on a lunar calendar, all of your months have 30 days in them because that's how long it takes the moon to go around the earth. Okay? So if you're on a lunar calendar, all your months have 30 days. Okay? So uh, 1,260 days is exactly 42 months on a lunar calendar, 42 times 30 is 1260, which is exactly three and a half years. That's, that's the point of 1260 days. There's going to be two witnesses for three and a half years. Okay, that's the point. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. I don't have time to get into that, but that is Zechariah 4. You can read Zechariah 4 in the margins of your Bible. If you have your Bible open right now, you can go back and look that up this week. That is, there's a whole thing in there about the lampstands and the, and the olive trees. Anyway, verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Okay? Now, that should remind you of something. These next couple of verses should remind you of specific miracles and stories in the Old Testament of Elijah and Mo Moses. And I forget if it is it 2 Kings 1 or the end of 1 Kings, but how many of you remember the, the story of Elijah? It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And King Ahaziah, Ahab has died. King Ahaziah wants to arrest Elijah, and so he sends uh, 50 soldiers to arrest him. And they come up and they find him at the top of a hill. I kind of imagine something like Abe's hill. And they come up to the top of him on this hill and they say, we're here to arrest you. And Elijah says, if I'm from the Lord, may fire fall down and consume you. And fire comes from heaven and burns them all up. Now at this point, if I'm King Ahaziah, I'm not trying to arrest him anymore. But this man is a stubborn man and he sends another 50 soldiers to the hill. And they go up there and they say, Elijah, we are arresting you and bringing you back to the king. And he says, if I'm from the Lord, then may fire come down and consume you. And they are all consumed. 
And Ahaziah does it a third time. And he sends 50 men. But by this time, the guy who's in charge of this, these 50 men has come to his senses. And when he gets to the top, he says, please don't burn us up. <laughs> and so Elijah says, okay. And then he just goes with them. So all they needed to do was say, please, in the first place. Okay. So, but anyway, these two witnesses. So there's going to be these two witnesses and we're going to explain all this. They're going to be able to do that same kind of thing. Same, but all, everything you're going to read in these couple of verses is all Elijah and Moses miracles, okay? So they're going to be able to call down fire if anyone wants to harm them. This is how he's doomed to be killed. Verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, okay? Again, Elijah did that in the days of King Ahab. That's a famous Elijah miracle. It's referred to in, in a, several places as well in the New Testament. These two witnesses are going to operate in the same power and miracles as Elijah and Moses, all right? And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood. Of course, that's the exodus in Moses there, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire, okay? So very clearly here, these two witnesses are men. They're either... You know, and, and the church has gone back and forth on this, They're, and, and people disagree. They're either actually Moses and Elijah, or some people would say Enoch and Elijah, whatever, come back to earth to do these things, or at the very least, I, you know, it, it, the passage doesn't tell us it's actually them. So maybe it's just two men who operate in the same power as them. The point is, clearly the passage is putting us with this parallel back to the, those two men. So two witnesses are going to be sent to the earth, to do the same things, kinds of things that Moses and Elijah did. Now look what happens to them when they're finished. Verse 7, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Now, again, so many Christians have read these chapters and said, this is so random. It's not random. Let's put an outline now of chapters 8, 9, 10, 11 on a screen together. Chapters 8 and 9, God's terrible trumpet judgments on the earth. End of chapter 9, nations refuse to repent. So remember, judgment isn't enough. They need someone to tell them what the solution is. They need someone to prophesy and bear witness. Chapter 10, John is told to prophesy Tell them to repent. And now we see chapter 11, it's the same thing again. It's God giving the nations one last opportunity to repent. He's going to see two witnesses. They're even called witnesses. Their whole job is to witness. Judgments are on the earth. The judgments are to, supposed to shake the nations and show them something's wrong. Now these two witnesses come along telling them to repent. And not only are they telling them to repent, they're doing supernatural miracles like Elijah and Moses. Why? To, to erase any excuse. I've heard people say before, I've personally heard people say, if I could just, if God would just do a miracle in front of me, I would believe in him. And the fact of the matter is, in most cases, it's actually false. There's enough evidence out there already to turn people to God. 
But God's going to prove it at the end. He's going to send two witnesses, and they're going to do the same kinds of things that Moses and Elijah did. And I want you to notice the results are the same again. Chapter 9, they did not repent. Chapter 10, John is told to tell the nations to repent. And in chapter 11, we see in the future, and these two powerful witnesses are going to come, and they're going to do miracles, and they're going to tell people to repent. And again, the result is the same. The nations still don't repent. They still don't repent. Look at this, verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, they've done all these miracles. You know, we laugh about that story with Elijah and Ahaziah keep sending the men over there. But this is the human condition. This is the hardness of the human heart. These men have just done powerful miracles. They've changed weather patterns. They've, they've caused plagues to happen. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. They're going to be killed. And they're not going to be killed. This beast is this powerful antichrist spirit. But it's not going to be an invisible demon killing them. Remember, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, says Ephesians 6, but against the principalities and powers of, over darkness. They always work through people. So this beast rises from the bottomless pit and the leaders in that time and in that area are going to raise up and they're going to seize these men and they're going to kill them. And then look at what happens next, verse 9. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies. The point there is the people of the world are not repenting and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And may I just say again, this is revelation. These judgments and these prophetic warnings and then the killing of the prophets is, is doing something. It's revealing the human heart. It's revealing that the rebellion of the nations is not because people don't have enough proof about God. It's because people actually hate God anyway. And it has always been like this. I could show you many passages in Scripture. Let me show you just one. Matthew 23, Jesus says this. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Now there's, there's, there's three levels here. I, this passage, it's really important that we see this. There's Jesus. There's the prophets and scribes. I mean, that's, that's us. The, wise, the people who know about him follow him. And he really loves us. We're his kids. And then there's the people we're prophesying and witnessing to. And so you've got Jesus, you've got his people who are bearing witness, and then you have the people of the world who are being witnessed to. And Jesus loves this group. Well, he loves both of them because they're all his kids. He loves this group. He loves this group over here so much, even though they hate him, that he's willing to send his kids to go and tell them, even if it means that many of his kids will die. He loves the nation so much that he's actually willing to send us to suffer in order that they may know the truth. So look at this. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. He loves those prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of whom you will kill and crucify and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. Notice again these two things, judgment and witness. I send you witnesses, but you kill them. Now your house is going to be desolate. There's judgment, there's witness. 
There's judgment. There's prophecy. These two things always working together. Now, the unbelievable thing is that when God sends the prophets and the scribes and the wise people, when he sends his people to bear witness to the nations, is not that an act of mercy? When he sends the two witnesses at the end of time, when he sends John to write down the book of Revelation, that's an act of mercy. He's sending the ones he loves to tell the nations, repent. Repent. You have a chance to repent. I'm not going to smash you on one. I'm sending these judgments to wake you up, and then I'm sending my beloved children to you to tell you about me. Repent. It's actually his mercy. But the fascinating thing is that when the human heart has rebelled against God, it doesn't experience mercy as mercy. It experiences mercy as torment. Revelation 11, verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them when the two witnesses are killed and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. When the human heart is hard, this is the difference between someone who struggles with sin because of weakness and someone who is in sin because they've rebelled against God. Someone who struggles with sin because of weakness, when they hear the truth, oh, it might not immediately set them free, but they want to be set free. And ultimately, it will set them free, but in a the, in the moment, they're broken by their sin. But the one who rebels against God, when they hear the truth, rather than receiving it as mercy, they are enraged. It's like an allergic reaction. I hate that. I hate you. They actually receive God's goodness as torment, as poison. Now, how does this apply to us today? If the two witnesses are in the future, how does this apply to us today? If the two witnesses are God's mercy, how does this apply to us today? We are most certainly God's witnesses to the nations in the here and now. Is that not true? These two things always have to go together. There's judgment and suffering on the earth now. We are meant to be his witnesses now, calling the nations on an individual level, we reach out to the people we know in our families and friends and co-workers and we bear witness to them. That's actually a very common word in Revelation. It's a common thing. It's this idea of bearing witness. And then on a corporate level, it means that as a church, we band together and we have courage and we publicly declare to the nations right and wrong, repentance, grace, but also the commandments. I want to end this message. There's one really fascinating thing I want to show you. And this word witness has a very interesting history. If we go back to verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, okay? And this word witness pops up through the book of Revelation. Witness, witness, witness. Bearing witness. You need to bear witness. Now, the interesting thing is the Greek word behind the word witness is the Greek word martis. Now, if that looks familiar to you, it should. It literally is martyr. Okay? The word martyr. Literally what this verse and everywhere else in the New Testament where you see witness, about bearing witness, it literally is the word martyr. So what this passage really says is, I will, and I will grant authority to my two martyrs, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Okay? Now you say, wait a minute, I thought martyrs just meant dying for Jesus. And yes, that is what it means now. And it's also what these two witnesses are going to do. They will die. Okay? But the thing you have to understand is when John wrote this, martyr in the Greek at this time 
just means witness. So if you bore witness to Jesus, even if you didn't die for your faith, you were a martyr, you were a witness. However, over time, over the first few centuries of, uh, of Christianity, for several really, it happened pretty quickly, they realized something, and that was this, that the Christians who bore the most powerful witness for Jesus were the ones who bore witness while suffering. It was the ones who were going through difficult things, specifically oftentimes were being persecuted for their faith, and in the midst of pain, continued to love their enemies, continued to forgive, continued to proclaim Jesus boldly, but in love, even while they suffered and were persecuted, those were the ones where the most hardened people would break down and give their lives to Jesus. And ultimately, the early church came to see that those who did this even in death were the most powerful overall. And so literally in the first several centuries, there was this shift to where martyr got used less and less just in general for witness to the point where it only got used of people who bore witness to Jesus in death, which is how we've received the word now as martyr, okay? But the thing that's so important for you to realize here is that in Revelation, all of us are called to be martyrs. Every one of us is called to be a martyr. Someone who is willing to bear witness to Jesus, not when it's easy, but when it's hard. You say, why would God send his, pro his prophets and scribes and witnesses? Why would he send out his people like sheep to be slaughtered? Why would he send us out to be martyrs, witnesses, if it means we're going to be killed? And I'll tell you why. Because, as I said before, some of the most hardened people in the world won't repent. And he loves them so much, he's willing to sacrifice they won't repent except in the presence of seeing believers who give off nothing but love and forgiveness and turn the other cheek even when they suffer. And Jesus says, I will reward you so much, children, but if you will stand up for me in love and suffer and still bear witness for me, you're going to win some of those people who otherwise would never be won. And so in Revelation 12, he says, this, this is how we conquer this is how we conquer the devil. And they have conquered him, speaking of the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's the witness. For they love not their lives even unto death. You know, there's this idea in some branches of the church, and this is why I think this is so important to talk about. There's this idea in some branches of the church that if the church does its job properly, everyone will like us. False. Did everybody like Jesus? What did Jesus say in John 15? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. There's this idea in some Christian circles that the only reason the world hates us is because we're preaching too much law and not, not enough grace. We have to preach both. We have to preach Old Testament and New Testament. We have to preach the commandments and we have to preach forgiveness because that's what it means to bear witness. And the judgments are coming on the earth because of wickedness. But the nations don't have an opportunity to repent unless Christians are bold enough to stand up and actually bear that witness even if it costs us something. That's actually our job. We're not going to be loved for doing that. If they hated me, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hates you. 
Therefore, skip down a little bit, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Too many Christians today think the goal of the church, let's just put our heads down and be nice, and then we'll be liked more. Let's just keep our heads down and not proclaim sin and repentance and those things. The moment we put our heads down and just try to keep safe, we've lost the, goal, the point of one of the main purposes why we exist, which is to bear witness. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? And let's ask the Lord to give us courage to be martyrs, witnesses for Jesus in every circumstance of life. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you for Revelation chapters 10 and 11. You have called us to prophesy and bear witness to the nations about sin and forgiveness. Give us the courage and the grace to be loving martyrs, witnesses for you. In your name we pray. Amen.